Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, the ACT leader David Seymour is on a mission to convince his coalition partners to flatten the tax system in this year's budget, arguing that everyone can be better off. Finance Minister Nicola Willis has promised tax relief this year, even staking her job on it. But she's yet to give detail about what the package will actually look like. Here is our Deputy Political Editor, Craig McCulloch. It was the centrepiece of National's election offering a so-called back-pocket boost, tax cuts for all. National thinks Kiwis deserve to keep more of what they earn. Only a party vote for National will deliver tax relief for New Zealanders. Relief is on its way. But Kiwis are still waiting for it to arrive or for more details about what it might look like. National campaigned on a proposal to adjust the tax brackets. But during coalition negotiations, it agreed with ex-David Seymour to look at whether aspects of his party's tax policy could be incorporated, as long as no one was left worse off than under National's plan. If you introduce ex-concepts, you can leave everyone better off in the short run, but in the long run, you leave the whole society better off because we have a more unified society. In simple terms, ACT wants a flatter tax system with fewer rates. It campaigned on axing the lowest threshold at 10.5%, meaning the government would collect more revenue in total from all taxpayers. Some of that extra money raised would then be returned to low- and middle-income earners through a targeted tax credit as effective compensation. The extra money left over would then allow the government to reduce the highest tax rates. Suddenly you're closer to a world where everyone pays the same rate of tax and I think that that's a world which is a bit fairer. We're all in the same boat, we're all in this together. A lot less people run off to their accountants and say, well, how can I shift some income into a different tax year or maybe get my kids to declare some of it on my behalf or many other things that people do. Treasury officials are now doing the maths, but the tax consultant Terry Boucher sees merit in Axe's proposal. He points out it's similar to New Zealand's tax structure throughout the 90s and early 2000s. It is not the worst idea in the world, but it really comes down to the devil being in the detail. Yes, the tax credits thing can work, but is it going to be available to everybody? Are they going to exclude groups such as beneficiaries? That's the nub of it, really. Exactly what's on the table and how far the government could go remains unclear. Late last year, the Finance Minister Nicola Willis appeared to rule out scrapping the top tax rate of 39%, but divulged little more. We are having detailed discussions. We're taking a range of advice. There are a lot of options. David Seymour remains optimistic. We hope our coalition partners will seriously uh, consider adopting it for New Zealand. On the other hand, if Treasury can show that the maths are difficult to stack up, then hey, if you never have an idea rejected, you're probably not thinking ambitiously enough. The calculations continue mathematical and political. New Zealanders will learn where the coalition has landed come Budget Day in May, as well as exactly what they'll get back in their pocket. Now, a neighbour to the 79-year-old woman who was found dead at her Wellington home says residents are anxious for answers. 79-year-old Helen Gregory was found dead in her Baroda Street home last Wednesday. Police were initially treating the death as suspicious, but upgraded that to a homicide inquiry yesterday afternoon. Steve Watt, who has lived near Ms Gregory's home for 20 years, says police have been out in force since Wednesday night. It's pretty sad really to know that someone in your own street, a neighbour, especially a, an older lady living on her own, that that's happened you know, to, to someone like that, especially in a quiet little street like this. 
but um, I suppose there's a few concerned residents, but they just want to know what the uh, what the full story is. Well, Greg O'Connor is the MP for Ohariu and has been speaking with locals. He joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. What what have the locals been telling you out there? Oh, I'd just like to start by wishing sympathy to the family of, uh, of Mrs. Gregory. Um, obviously, um, this is a shock for them and as it is for the neighbours. Um, but, yeah, I think Mr Watt just summed it up um, quite nicely. Um, anxiety, um, particularly around knowing is this a random attack or is this... Uh, one of those cases where the offender and the victim are known to each other. So um, a quick resolution um, will is the only thing that will still that anxiety, I think. What can you tell us about the police presence in the area at the moment? Well, it's an interesting street. Um, it's a, the archetypal tree-lined dead-end street. However, it's got a cafe and a child care centre and actually an embassy residence in it as well. Um, so there's actually a lot of comings and goings. Uh, and believe me, yesterday there was a, a lot of competition for parking uh, because there are quite a few police cars in there having just been upgraded to a homicide inquiry um, early on Sunday. How long do you expect the police to be there? Well, obviously, the, um, typically they'll have to do the scene um, and that'll be depending on what type of scene it is. Um, and that could be anything. I mean, obviously, the police will be the ones that will be able to tell you that. Mm. Um, but they won't be going anywhere until they've extracted uh, all the evidence uh, they believe they can get out of that scene. So usually it's a matter of days. Um, you, would, uh, you would hope so. It wouldn't be, especially local businesses would be hoping it wouldn't be too much longer. Mm. What can you tell us about crime in that area? Oh, look, uh, there's always um, bits and pieces of, uh, there's been a bit of, bit of an outbreak of uh, willful damage. Um, but really, um, homicide in a street always ups the ante. Uh, uh, no one gets used to that. I think uh, it doesn't matter what sort of an area you live in. And this is a, um, you know, this is the heart of Kandala, you know, the heart of Ohariu. Um It's a very middle-class suburb. And so people are, are very surprised by it, as they are in any street. So homicide really does um, bring home and the reality of, of crime, more so than anything else, I think. Just finally, what can you tell us, what have people been telling you about uh, Helen Gregory and their experiences or exchanges with her? A oh, very long-term resident, um, very quiet, kept to herself. Um, people saw her heading off to church on Sundays, um, but really, um, while a few people I knew her sort of better than others, but really did pretty much keep to herself. Okay. Appreciate your time this morning and yeah, reiterating your condolences there to the friends and whanau of uh, Helen Gregory. Thunderstorms forced the evacuation of an outdoor concert in Hamilton last night. Yes, thousands were at the Claudelands Oval in Hamilton to hear the headline act Simple Minds. Uh, when they were told they had to leave the venue. Joining us now is Dean Calvert, the general manager of concert promoter Greenstone Entertainment. Hi, Dean. Uh, this would be a bit disappointing, although they got most of the set through, did they? Yeah, it was uh, It was a bit disappointing, but um, listen, they were meant to finish at 6.30, and they finished at 6.00. They had to pull the, pull the show at 6.20, you know, um, purely around safety uh, reasons for both the public and and everyone at the show. So, you know, it was a ten minute, um, um, sh- a ten minute shorter than what it what it could have been, but paramount is safety of all our participants. Yeah, there. I yeah. hope people got to have the big sing along with "Don't You Forget About Me." Ironically, that was um, the last show, uh, last song before um, the the thunderstorm started to roll in. So, um, it was a fitting 
final song. And um, whilst we we were disappointed to cut it slightly short, I think everyone had a great time. I'm sure they would have left on a high after that. Um, what was the issue here? Because rain doesn't always stop concerts. So why did you have to stop because of rain? We didn't need to stop because of rain. So rain is not the issue. Um, in in an outdoor setting, um, when you've got the infrastructure you have, the two areas that you have to constantly monitor is wind and lightning. So it was a lightning storm that was sitting off Raglan um, and, and it was it was closing in and we were monitoring it uh, constantly for a couple of hours. We saw it coming down the coast and then it started to shift across towards Hamilton. So in the end it was only a few k's out and it was a appropriate decision to make. Mm. The, the procedure for getting, how many thousands did you have there and how, how did they all sort of file out in an orderly way? So we were we were um, extremely impressed with with the crowd. Um, we had seven thousand people there when we came on stage and announced what was happening. Obviously, people were disappointed initially, but then there was an orderly um, exit, and um, people just decided um, to to leave leave the show. And then some actually went and stayed inside the Claudelands um, arena. So it was it was managed. Really well. We, we we do all of our emergency and evacuation plans. We we put that as part of our planning all the way through. So we, I was very impressed with the with the outcome. And simple minds, they're Scottish, right? They would have been. Uh, they wouldn't have been averse to a little bit of rain, would they? They actually thought it was their summer. So um, <laughs> they no, they absolutely weren't adverse to a bit of the rain. The rain, as we said, whilst it was uncomfortable at times, the rain wasn't the wasn't the issue. The issue was when the, the thunderstorm started sure. to appear. Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like it all ended all right and the end could have been a lot worse. Thank you very much for that. Dean Calvert there, General Manager of Concert Promoter Greenstone Entertainment. That was the Simple Minds concert in Hamilton. I think Texas and Collective Soul were also on the bill as well. Bit of a nostalgia fest. Well, the government says it won't further investigate whether the death of a New Zealand aid worker in Ukraine was a war crime, but experts say more could be done. Andrew Bagshaw and Chris Parry were shot while evacuating civilians in the Soldar region of Ukraine a year ago. Mr Bagshaw's parents, Sue and Phil Bagshaw, say evidence points to the pair being shot by the Wagner Group, the Russian-controlled private military company. Ellen O'Dwyer reports. Phil Bagshaw says he's spoken to a Ukrainian investigator who has 10,000 war crime cases on his desk. He's calling on the New Zealand and UK governments to send their own investigator to Kiev. This is a responsibility of the UK government and the New Zealand government to investigate a war crime of a foreign national killed on foreign soil. Post-mortem results show both aid workers died from gunshot wounds to the head and other parts of the body. Days after their death, pictures surfaced of both men's passports on the Wagner Group's Telegram channel. Phil Bagshaw says there's more witnesses he can direct authorities to. But in a statement to RNZ, the Ministry of Trade and Foreign Affairs says that while it condemns the killings of Mr Bagshaw and Mr Parry, it won't be investigating further. In the current situation, the ICC and Ukraine authorities are best placed to pursue any further investigation, including obtaining evidence. 
For privacy reasons, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade will not provide further comment about this individual consular matter, including with respect to the reported causes of Andrew's death and engagement with his family. The UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office told RNZ it does not investigate war crimes and also says any further investigation is for the Ukrainian authorities. Under the Geneva Convention, intentionally killing a civilian in armed conflict is a war crime. A UK coroner's ruling last month found Mr Parry was fatally shot while undertaking aid work. That differs from the initial official explanation of the men's deaths, that their car was hit by artillery shell. International relations professor Robert Patman says New Zealand and the UK could work together to investigate the death and should send a signal that it won't turn the other cheek to war crimes. It's very important, I think, uh, that New Zealand walks the talk about upholding the rule of law, even at the time of war. And that is our official position, so we need to be active as we can to pursue this. Dr Marnie Lloyd, a specialist in the law of armed conflict at Victoria University of Wellington, says under international humanitarian law, countries have an obligation to help facilitate war crimes investigations, even if they did not occur in their territory. The Ukrainian prosecutor's office said last year it was looking at 100,000 allegations of war crimes committed by Russia, with numbers rising weekly. Investigators from Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, Slovakia and Romania have gone to Ukraine to help work on the cases. The International Criminal Court is also investigating. Dr Lloyd says if Ukrainian authorities agreed, New Zealand or UK law enforcement officials could help investigate the deaths on the ground as part of a broader ICC case against Wagner Group members. It's not only about punishing the person or um, deterring future war crimes, but it's about kind of documenting and witnessing what has happened. Both the UK Foreign Office and MFAT says they have provided funding for the ICC's prosecutions in Ukraine. Neither department responded to RNZ's questions about why the official explanation of the deaths differed from the post-mortem evidence. Ellen O'Dwyer with that report. The uh, government here saying it won't investigate further the uh, death, whether the death of New Zealand aid worker Andrew Bagshaw was a war crime. To Christchurch, the whale that got stuck on a sandbar in the shallow estuary, estuary at Monks Bay in Christchurch has died. Our reporter Anna Sargent is there uh, right now. Anna, good morning. What can you tell us about what has happened here? Good morning. So I spoke to the Department of Conservation um, and they mentioned that the tide got low around 2am this morning and whale was beached and would have been struggling to survive at that point. And they just went out before and checked the whale on the boat and it looks like it has died. And it looks like it's a juvenile fin whale, which they said is unusual to have, um, well, they said it's unusual to have a whale in this location full stop. And at this stage, it's rolling with the tide further and further into the estuary. And it's hard to see at the moment um, from the wharf, but they're, yeah, they're doing a recovery rather than a rescue operation at the moment. So, and so the next step... Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, just for people who are unfamiliar with that area, the, the, the estuary there, so it's come in the Sumner Bar, has it? Yes, no, and it's um, sort of where you can see it from the wharf. It's quite far out. Um, it's by the little boats um, sort of on the side of the bay. But there's you know, definitely crowds of people watching um, with cameras and trying to get a look. And as I heard from the Department of Conservation, there was quite a bit of interest yesterday, um, lots of people wanting to offer support. And 
um, yeah, basically do what they can to help. So, what was the, the there was an attempt to to refloat it, or how, how serious did that get? Yeah, so overnight um, it was quite dark. It was hard for yeah, teams to, um, I suppose, do anything really. But yeah, it was um, early this morning that they went out and checked, and when they saw it had um, sadly passed away. So this whale, I understand that the species can be one of the largest. So what what size are we talking about here? Yeah, so they mentioned it looks like it's a juvenile fin whale, um, and it's unusual to have a whale in this location at all. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually, unfortunately, I can't see the whale from where I am, so I'm not too sure of the specifics of the size of that one. And have locals said anything about other any other whales coming into this area before that they can remember? Yes, well, he mentioned um, the Department of Conservation that in the last few months there was another whale stranding um, in the Christchurch area, unfortunately. But this this area specifically, it um, sounds like it's unusual to have whales just in this area in general. So it's a very yeah very sad occurrence for the locals. Mm. And what will happen now? Yeah, so the next steps are we'll be working with Ewe um, and looking for options of whether they can um, leave the whale where it is or bring it in, and it's really just um, yeah, working with the different groups and seeing what they can do to help. Thanks for the update, Anna. That is Anna Sargent there, our reporter in Christchurch, uh, out at the estuary, Monks Bay, where sadly a whale uh, was stranded and has died overnight. Well, the mayors of Wellington City and Upper Hutt will meet today with the local government minister, Simeon Brown, to discuss the region's water crisis. One local mayor not taking part is Carpety Coast District Mayor Janet Holborough. Carpety Coast District is the only council in Greater Wellington to have brought in water metres. It did that about 10 years ago. Uh, the Mayor Janet Holborough says it's been a success and she joins us now to tell us more. Kia ora, good morning. Uh, what was the impact for your uh, council, for your district, of introducing water metres? Yeah, kia ora, good morning. Yes, it had a... And thanks for having me on to speak. I, I feel a little bit left out. I'm not going to speak to the minister, but uh, it's wonderful that we have enough uh, water up here to uh, to to look after our residents over the summer period. We're not looking forward to any uh, water restrictions over the summer. Yeah, so um, huge um, thanks to Jenny Rowan and the council uh, over 10 years ago who put in water meters and river recharge scheme which means that we have enough water um, in dry periods like this. So you think that has had a direct impact of meaning that you don't have a water shortage? Yeah, we immediately saw an impact after the water meters were put in. Even before we started charging, even when the trial readings went in, we saw an immediate drop in water usage. The main thing was finding the leaks. We found 443 leaks immediately, and uh, that saw a 90% drop in water lost through leaks. And there was a huge amount of water being lost that way. So that was the main immediate impact. Okay, so, so what happened there? People would, people would have a, a meter reading that was way off and that would alert you to come out and find and fix the leak. Yeah, so we were able to, through, through the infrastructure that was put in to read the water meters, we were able to find leaks on public and private land. And so it was um, both of those kinds of leaks that were happening and water just gushing into the ground. So um, we were able to save um, a huge amount of water through fixing leaks and then through um, also a drop in private use, um, around about a 26% decrease overall in private use. And the main decrease is people who were using a lot of water, what we called our high water users, 
and we saw a 70% reduction there. So huge reductions just across the board. Um, it's, um, it's, you know, it's um, undeniable that the water meters had a massive impact on water use. Also undeniable that leaks are a huge part of the Wellington region's water issues. So, I mean, just knowing, they know there are a lot of leaks out there already. It doesn't help them fix them. Yeah, so, I mean, um, there is a deeper problem here, which is how we fund uh, our water infrastructure across the country. And that certainly is an issue, and I feel for my neighbours, and we struggle with that as well. We're looking at high rates increases, just like the rest of the country. But what we can do is make sure that we can minimise that by having infrastructure in place that allows us to find leaks, to target that work, so that we can um, maximise the funds that we do have so that we can provide um, water infrastructure for our communities. So when you look at the numbers, firstly, how much did it cost to put in those water meters? And then is the money that's raised through that put directly back into water services? Yeah, it cost about $8 million to put in the water meters. Of course, it was easier for us with our topography in Kapiti than it would be in Wellington. Yeah, we've seen quotes there of $130 million uh, was, yeah, was talked yeah, about this morning. Yeah. But when, when you factor that in to the cost of providing water infrastructure, which is hugely expensive, then it does pay itself back. And we have what we call a closed water account. So, yes, all the all the funds that come in from uh, the revenue from water meters goes straight back into providing uh, water services. Was it controversial just finally when it was introduced in Kapiti as well? Yes, that's putting it mildly. Actually, it went through a long-term plan process, and I think around uh, fourteen hundred submissions, which for a district our size is is quite a massive response. And yes, very, very, very politically challenging at the time, but um, the council pushed ahead, and we're grateful now with the with these uh, the lack of water restrictions over this dry summer. That's for sure. Thanks for your time this morning. That is uh, Carpety Coast District Mayor Janet Holbro. Uh, Carpety not having any water restrictions there, and uh, put in water meters about a decade ago. It- Well, a Coromandel leader says the reopening of a major road in the district has made a huge difference for businesses, residents and visitors. State Highway 25A reopened in late December after extreme weather damage caused an 11-month closure. Local businesses suffered with losses of more than $90 million in trading. Cafes and bars are saying the trade has improved dramatically. We're joined by Thames Coromandel Deputy Mayor Terry Walker. Hi, Terry. Good morning, Coron. How are you? Very well. So the weekend, you'd be having a bumper weekend, wouldn't you? How's it going? Bumper weekend's correct, fantastic. Uh, people are back and enjoying themselves and uh, everybody's uh, got a smile on their face and we look, look back 11 months, like you say, and uh, it wasn't so great then, but it's fantastic now. Did you lose many businesses along the way? Yes, there's a few carnage uh, that uh, people just you know can't trade without people um, and those kind of businesses did struggle. And uh, mainly around... Um, Tyrell felt the pain, uh, Pawanui as well, and the other small towns in the area struggled. But uh, I think there's light at the tunnel now with bridges there and uh, people are coming back and enjoying the holiday and bringing their wallets. Do you have confidence, does business have confidence, that those that are providing for tourism and uh, visitors, that this won't happen again? Yes, i really, really, really confident. The, uh, the bridge has been built for the $40 million, that's fine, but they spent another 20... Uh, 24 or $25 million on the road, giving it a better resilience. So they've done a lot of work on the road, and the road is really good to travel on now. And uh, 
I think it's, it'll handle the big event now without any, too much trouble. Are you, as a tourism area, and a hot spot, I suppose, you get a lot of local tourism, but are you, are you feeling as though that you are back to sort of pre-COVID levels when we look at tourism? I think locally we're getting back to those numbers. Internationally, I still think that they're, uh, they're normally a year out for making their decisions. Um, so so I don't think we're quite there yet with them. Um, but I, with the confidence that... Uh, will come with the road being open, it will it will open those doors again, I'm sure, in the future. And do you, as a local area, feel that you are able to fund your tourism infrastructure and visitor infrastructure properly, or do you need help? Always need help. Um, you know, Waka Katai has been fantastic stepping up to this uh, project and, uh, you know, did it in pretty record time and made a template for the future. So, yeah, we do need help. Um we're only a small 30,000 rate rating uh, year, area, even though we bring in we have well over 200,000 people you know, during the summer period. So help is always required. Yeah, I was speaking to Matt Ducey, the new tourism minister, about this, and he's uh, saying everything's on the table, introduce, uh, you know, higher visitor levies, bed taxes. He hasn't ruled anything in or out. He's just having a good look. Would you encourage, Would you want something like the ability to raise funds through a bed tax or something like that to help? Yeah, I think those discussions are very much welcomed. Um, I'm not too sure what the actual answer should be, but uh, we do rely uh, heavily on overseas tourism through the summer. There's a lot of businesses that rely on that, and uh, if he can provide some activity or some funding models that will work for us, we'd be keen to look at them for sure. Very good. Thank you, Terry. We'll enjoy the rest of uh, what is a bit of a long weekend for you, I imagine, with um, perhaps a few Aucklanders in town. Uh, That was Tim's Coromandel Deputy Mayor, Terry Walker. The Australian Open has come to a close with Yannick Singer. Why do I say that? Sinner. Uh, making a stunning comeback to take out the title, beating Daniel Medvedev. Down two sets and locked it 4-4 four to four in the third set. Sinner turned things around to claim his very first Grand Slam title in five sets. He is the first Australian Open champion in more than a decade, not named either Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer. On Saturday, Arena Sabalenka blasted her way to a second women's singles title over Overwhelming China's junction win. Tennis commentator Dave Worsley predicted Yannick Sinner would win the title. He is with us now. Uh, Kia ora, good morning. It wasn't seeming like such a good bet a couple of sets in, but you got there in the end, and so did he. Yeah, I did there, uh, and good. Uh, no, I was a little bit concerned about uh, that prediction, albeit that uh, it was uh, certainly something poor. Sinner to make it through to the final, where he defeated, of course, Novak Djokovic uh, in the semifinals to make it through. But, uh, yeah, it was looking very uh, risky. And now uh, Daniel Medvedev is the only person to have twice lost a Grand Slam final uh, after being two sets up. He lost two years ago to Rafael Nadal, also at the Australian Open. So uh, oh, not wow. a record that you want to hold here. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. And you have to feel... You have to feel some sympathy for Medvedev. Uh, he competed so well throughout the whole tournament. I think that was his fourth uh, five-set match of the tournament. And he played for about 25 hours or thereabouts uh, throughout the whole event, which is just huge. So uh, you've got to feel some sympathy for him. And uh, he certainly gave credit to uh, uh, to Yannick Sinner in the end. But a great effort by the 22-year-old Italian to come through and uh, to actually uh, win the title. And... Uh, Boy, he showed grit and determination to come back.
A great story from him as well. So young and the first Italian, well, I think there was some stat there, the first Italian to get through to a Grand Slam for some time. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, uh, he certainly was the first uh, Grand Slam winner uh, of um, the Australian Open uh, for uh, Italy, uh, male or female, and uh, the first um, Italian to win in the Open era uh, as well for uh, male. So, yeah, the impressive record, and he is just a genuine, humble sort of uh, player who, uh, <laughs> at the end, sort of said, um, that's about all I've got to say. He couldn't really think of anybody else he had to thank, and he was just uh, humble and, um, yeah, certainly a very, very popular winner. Yeah, great story. Okay, on Saturday with the women's uh, singles final, uh, more of a one-sided affair there. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it was uh, Arena Sabalenka winning in straight sets. She was just too powerful from the first point yeah. through to the last point. And uh, she kind of reminded me of uh, Serena Williams in her prime, that she was just attacking, intimidating, anything that was within her hitting zone, she put it away, and uh, with so much power as well. So I think that uh, Zhang making it through to the final, certainly a great effort uh, 10 years after the win of Li Na uh, at the same tournament. But yeah, I think uh, Sabalenka, she was just so aggressive and intimidating. So it's going to take a lot for someone to beat her at the Australian Open in the future. Yeah. What about Novak Djokovic? Let's talk about him. Didn't even make it make it through to the final. Uh, what are your predictions there for him? Well, certainly he's he's older now, of course, and he's uh, you know I wouldn't say he's had too many injuries. He seems to be always so fit and find a new way to come through. But it was a shock, no matter what, whenever Novak Djokovic loses at the Australian Open. I mean, he hadn't lost for a few years, and uh, that was a shock when he last uh, was defeated in 2018, I think it was, or 2017. But for Yannick Sinner to actually beat him, it looked as though Sinner beating him was sort of um, a bit of a hangover in the final because that was such a momentous occasion. But Djokovic, he'll be back. Uh, I believe that this year he's still got a Grand Slam win in him in one of the next three majors. Okay. Well, watch the space and we will uh, look forward to your predictions about these next upcoming tournaments as well. Thank you very much for that. That was tennis commentator Dave Worsley. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.